Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. What are you celebrating today? What are you acknowledging? To whom are you bending the knee? What are you acknowledging before others? I um I am going to lead off today uh, with a conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner, and he and I are going to spend our time unpacking and talking about um, a speech that was given at the Golden Globes on Sunday night. And I don't often do this, but we're going to we're going to take a, a, a three-paragraph speech, and we're going to parse it out. And there's a reason we're doing this. And I want to have this whole conversation um, in light of Romans chapter 1 and the reality that it's not just about personal sin. And so this is going to be a conversation about abortion. This is going to be a conversation about um, the way in in which we process information publicly. This is going to be uh, a conversation about what we applaud and what we acknowledge or affirm. And so I want us to consider that in Romans 1, the concern is not just those who have turned from the truth, those who actively suppress the truth, those who um, engage in, in behaviors that are obviously contrary um, to the will of God. The Romans 1 passage ends this way. Um, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that uh, they do what ought not be done. Now, there, it's it's kind of easy for some of us to say, I recognize this reality. I recognize that there are people in our culture functioning outside of a right and righteous mind, and they they therefore do things that are described right here in Romans 1 as every kind of wickedness, every kind of evil greed and depravity. It goes on and on. Murder is on this list. Um, And so as a part of that, abortion, it actually says they invent ways of doing evil um, and they they don't have any understanding um, of love or mercy. Now, the final verse then condemns all of us who live in a culture that um, approves of those who practice these things. And and what we're going to talk about here, we're going to center in on this concept of approval, because that's actually where Michelle Williams starts her comments, in gratitude for the approval she's receiving for the choices she's made. And one of the choices that she has made um, is abortion. So although they know God's righteous decrees, this is Romans chapter 1, verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death. Now, again, that's because the penalty of sin is death. Murder is sin, and abortion is murder. These syllogisms are not difficult to understand. Uh, Romans 1, 32 goes on to say, they not only continue to do these very things, they also approve of those who practice them. The approval of the practice of abortion during this Sanctity of Life uh, month is of concern to me. If it's of concern to you, um, I hope that the conversation I'm about to have with Peter Kapsner about Michelle Williams' Golden Globe speech proves provocative. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Joining me now, Dr. Peter Kapsner, among other things, a professor at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Um, Peter, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. Great uh, to be with you. Great tease, too. I mean, what a, what a situation with Michelle Williams here. There's lots to get to on that one. So what I'm going to do, um, because uh, you and I will need some sort of formula to follow, I'm going to read the first paragraph of her speech, and then we're going to talk about it. How's that sound? That sounds great. Yep, great. So Michelle Williams uh, stands up to receive her award at the Golden Globes. She thanks um, her uh, the, the group of people that help her do what she does, and then she thanks the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And then uh, I'll begin quoting her here. When you put this, she's holding the award, when you put this in someone's hands, you're acknowledging the choices they've made as an actor, moment by moment, scene by scene, day by day. But you're also acknowledging the choices they make as a person, the education they pursued, the training they sought, the hours they put in. I'm grateful for the acknowledgement of the choices I've made. She is um, talking there about a very specific choice, and the word choice is the one that appears throughout her speech. What does it look like for us uh, in the culture today to approve of the choice of of abortion? Yeah, she never comes out right and says abortion, right? I mean, that was one of the things that was noticed, but it was clearly implied that that was a decision that she made. And pretty hard to crawl into her head about why she was so adamant about this particular speech and this particular angle of the speech. I do know um, a woman who had an abortion at one point, and and she talks about the idea that every year that goes around uh, that would have otherwise celebrated the birth of her child, that she never, there's never a year that goes by that she doesn't think about it. And she talks about sort of the the trauma that it creates in a person, but also sort of the possibility of healing nonetheless, but it's always sort of there. And it's, and it's one of those things that stick with you. So I can't crawl into her mind, but it was pretty clear from the outset of her speech because it was very carefully crafted that she really wanted to say something about the choice that she made. And then as you referenced right here, she wanted to sort of have that choice celebrated. There's nothing sort of more falsely but nonetheless cathartic to our conscience when we make decisions that we make and then have people around us celebrate or applaud them. And so she was framing her choice to suppose, assuming she had an abortion, she was framing that choice in such a way that it should be lauded, that it should be applauded by people, that choice is the greatest good that somebody can have. And of course, there's many different ways than you and I can start going with this because there's lots of other choices that she made and, and lots of other angles to the story. But but the point at this point that you've rightly pointed out is she just really wanted people to applaud both the idea of choice and also then affirm the choice that she made, given the perceived success now that she was having as a direct result in her mind of that choice. All right, Peter, she goes on to say, I've tried my very best to live a life of my own making. Uh, Okay, let's just pause there. I've tried my very best to live a life of my own making. This whole concept, this whole idea of being self-made, let's just address that. Yeah, well, that you and I have talked about this from a few different kinds of angles over the last six months or so. But that that idea of being self-made is perhaps one of the greatest but often unspoken values, certainly uncriticized values of Western individualistic culture, is that when, when the individual is sort of in the place of primacy, when the individual is the one who should be protected at all costs, then the idea of that is that the individual who is self-made by the metrics of success such as money or power or visibility or status really is that individual that is applauded. And we, I think, if we're not careful, Carmen, we really subtly 
in our own lives as believers, even the way we raise our kids quite often, even what we emphasize in churches uh, quite often as well, if we're not careful, we adopt that cultural value that sounds really good to be self-made. But the two problems with that is, one, nobody is self-made. I mean, there's, there's many people who start out 50 yards ahead of somebody else just by virtue of where they start in life, whether it's a, a wealthy environment or, uh, or not a product of generations that come before. But I think more importantly, from a theological standpoint, the idea of being self-made is then cutting God out of the equation, and it exalts the self as sort of the locus of success or lack thereof. So I'm going to read um, the the three sentences. Um, well, I don't know. It's actually kind of a run-on sentence, but I'm going to, I'm going to read it, and then um, I'd like us to lift up the three uh, sort of false – well, I, there's there's three false things that are going on just in this one statement – and they all have to do with a misunderstanding of who God is and me versus thee. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll identify those. I've tried my best to live a life of my own making, and not just a series of events that happened to me, but one that I can stand back and look at and recognize my handwriting all over, sometimes messy and scrawling, sometimes careful and precise, but one that I carved with my own hand. Peter, as I, as I read that, as I hear it, as I heard her say it the first time, not only this idea that she, is, she understands herself to be self-made and that her life is self-made, um, but that she intends to look back at a legacy that is written in her own hand. That, that says she does not believe that God is the author of her life in any way, and certainly that he is not writing her life day by day. And then this last image um, that she believes that she's going to, you know, have a, a life that is carved with her own hand. Man, the potter and the clay jump oh. out at me in terms of scriptural illusions. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And the passage you read from Romans, uh, the, sort of the entire premise and the concern of Paul as he writes that chapter in Romans 1 is that the, both the, the early Jewish and Gentile Christians, but uh, certainly the world around them, had uh, what he says, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And, and the whole passage is about idolatry, which simply means that in, in that passage that they're cutting out God and they're deciding to worship other things in a variety of ways. And so because that's true, because they take God out of the equation, he no longer is the potter, no longer are we the clay, as you referenced, but we exalt ourselves sort of in the place of God. That's when it, it has this haunting and rather difficult statement that God gives them over. It's, it's one of those messages that's very consistent in the biblical text. God deals with sin in one of two ways, typically speaking, when it's people in authority who are representing his kingdom or are standing in the way of God's kingdom and they're actively defying God and keeping others out. He often simply just moves them aside and, and it's troubling, but it's very real. But the more common way that God deals with this is he simply gives people over to all of their passions and desires that are almost always related to self-interest, where we're going to go ahead and write our lives on our own. And it is, it is such a significant deceit that wreaks havoc, as if it's even possible to write your life on your own, right? I mean, we, again, you and I have so many influences to which we could be grateful in our lives of people who have spoken into our lives, gave us opportunities, gave us a sense of the kingdom, helped walk along in times of brokenness and sorrow. All The idea that I'm sort of this island who is writing my own life is ridiculous, even if you don't believe in God, but much less for people uh, who believe in God to suggest uh, anything other than the fact that God really is our potter. Oh, it just, it speaks to so much, Carmen. It's just, it's hard to know what to do. I think one last piece that I was thinking about with this 
is it's interesting in the Tower of Babel situation in early Genesis that when humankind is exalting themselves by trying to make a name for themselves in the heavens, the, the image there is that they would rather have their name exalted in the heavens as opposed to God's name. And in so doing, God says in those moments, I'm going to divide you up in your languages, because if I don't, it says nothing will be impossible for you. Uh, and, and that phrase in the Hebrew, nothing will be impossible, literally is rendered, no sin will be impossible. You, you will invent ways to defy me in, in the self-exaltation. And I think that's what we see here. I, it's pretty tough to turn off the conscience and decide to embrace and applaud abortion until you're far down the path of having taken God out of the equation and exalting self and choice and all of these other things. All right, Peter and I have to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to actually address um, the rest of this speech, which really does set up um, a woman's a woman's right to choose as a religion. Um, and, it, and she uses religious language and makes direct reference to God. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. In, in whom do you put your faith? Um, what do you worship? What constitutes religion for you? I'm continuing my conversation with, uh, with Professor Peter Kapsner. We are talking about Michelle Williams' speech given at the Go- Golden Globes award ceremony um, on Sunday night. Um, Peter, let me pick up with, the, um, with her two walk-off paragraphs. I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose. Here, she's making reference to abortion, but lacks the, in my view, moral courage to actually use the word, say the word, to choose when to have my children and with whom, when I felt supported and able to balance our lives, knowing, as all mothers know, the scales must and will tip towards our children. Now, I know my choices might look different than yours, and here we go, here's the religious language, but thank God, or whomever you pray to, that we live in a country founded on the principle that I am free to live by my faith and you are free to live by yours. Um, I'm going to pause right there because mm. she's invoking um, religious liberty here uh, as an elevating choice, abortion, um, to religious status, to an, as an object of worship. I mean, I, that is how I hear this. I do too, Carmen. I think you're spot on with that. And I think not only that, she's subsuming God underneath our free moral agency or capacity to choose, assuming that God is there to support then our choices somehow. And it's it's frightening language about how upside down it is. And and I think the other piece of that too that doesn't get pointed out is that uh, oftentimes there are all kinds of choices that are the idea of choice isn't just limited to whether you're going to have an abortion or not. You, many women uh, or men are are choosing to engage in the kind of sexual activity that might lead to a pregnancy in a situation that they otherwise might not. That's part of choice. And uh, and so the idea that choice can be reduced down to just something, well, this will benefit me, and thank goodness that I have this ability to benefit myself and not even think about all the choices that might have led up to it, number one. But Again, back to your point, I think the most important point here is that there is this sort of subtle move to say choice is the most important thing that we can have, and thank God that he gave us this ability to have choice. There isn't any language in here about surrender or submission 
or I'm in the hands of a king, or I'm a bondservant, or my life is not my own, it's been bought with a price. There's none of that language in there. And that is the language of the kingdom, that if you want to find your life, you need to lose it. Uh, And in all of this, she's simply using God as a prop to prop up her own decisions and desires. And and it's so unfortunate, um, just given the platform that's there. So uh, let me just end with this, Peter. Um, How would you respond if I told you that as she was giving this speech, um, she was doing so as a woman pregnant? Wow. Uh, Because she is. She's now um, she's now confirmed that, you know, she's pregnant. She's got a baby on the way. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I just think about the dissonance you have to have inside. Basically, you have to make the theological and sort of uh, anthropological or human move to suggest that whatever is inside of you in this moment doesn't actually become human until after the birth process. And I know that some people will try to make that argument, but I just, I mean, how do you receive that and respond to that, Carmen? Because I, I think you you have to somehow bracket it off. You have to sort of believe something different about the foundation and formation of life in order to both celebrate the destruction of it in the womb as being a very healthy choice and also then celebrate when you allow it to come to fruition within the womb. Those are two mutually exclusive possibilities unless you don't believe life begins at conception. But I don't know how you would respond to that. I think the other um, point that I would uh, that I would want to talk about would be whether or not a child is their own person um, yeah. or whether or not they're just a person for the purpose of whatever I, um, as a woman, might think or want to have another little person around to do or be. Like, it seems to me as if she is regarding children not only as commodities, but as very personalized commodities that are only, um, you know, only brought into life at the point in time uh, and and in the way that she as an individual so chooses. I just think this is going to need to be an ongoing conversation among Christians because we fall into this family planning trap um, yeah. when when we begin to think that, oh, I can wait until I'm 42 or 52 or whatever when the point in time in my life is good, and then I can use technology to bring about the baby that I want at the time that I want it. And that just... I mean, all of that complicates the reality that that God is the author and the giver of life. All right, you and I have to leave it there. We're 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 out of time. But this is can we return to this subject um, in later conversations? Because I I think this question of our humanity is um, is essential, and personhood is an essential conversation we need to be having as Christians. Yeah, I think this would be a great conversation. And and I know for our listeners, too, we've talked and and referenced a couple of times the idea that we've started a new podcast called The Till. And I think this would be an excellent subject to really dive into for those 45 minutes uh, on The Till. So we'll continue to, I know, advertise where that is and where it can be found. But I think it would be a great medium for these kind of conversations as well. Yeah, absolutely. The Till, it's a podcast. Peter and I do it every week. All right. Hey, we got to take a minute for Breakpoint. We'll be right back. What in the world is going on in the United Methodist Church? Um, Is division upon us? The answer to that question is yes. Um, How did we get to this point, and what will every member of every United Methodist Church be required to consider and do in the coming months? I am asking those questions next of Reverend Tom Lambrick. Uh, Tom serves not only in the Good News Network, he also serves in the Wesleyan Association. Uh, You will like him a lot if you don't already know him. Uh, And he is going to help us understand from an insider view what's going on in the United Methodist Church. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen.
All right, what are you doing uh, July 24 and 25? Go ahead, get your calendar out. Look it up. July 24 and 25, I am going to be at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. I would love to meet you there, have an opportunity to talk with you about the book that is inside you and how that book might get out and onto paper and into print. Tickets are on sale now, uh, and there is a 20% discount off of registration during the month of January. So go to the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference.com, Northwestern Christian Writers Conference.com, and register. Love to meet you there. We'll be right back. This is Max Lucado reading from Acts chapter 2 Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What a moment on the day of Pentecost. Whatever could this mean? Peter responded to that question with a trio of God-given endorsements of Christ. He talked about when Jesus healed bodies and called life out of Lazarus's dead body. Then he deemed Christ worthy to serve as a sacrifice for humankind. But then the resurrection to be the beginning of life in the end of the grave. The word was out that the word was out. This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, uh, Tom Lambrecht. Uh, Tom and I, uh, our friends, have been friends for a long time. We work together in an organization called the Common Ground Christian Network. Uh, my friendship with Tom goes back to the days when in the PCUSA I was uh, seeking to keep from happening what he has long been seeking to keep from happening, what is now happening in the United Methodist Church. So that's my lead-in to this conversation with Tom Lambrecht from the Good News Network um, Tom, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. It's great to be with you. So um, let's just let's approach it this way. Um, help people understand what we're reading in the secular press about the the coming the the language that we're reading is you know a Methodist split, a division, a separation. Talk with us about what is um, now anticipated to happen in the United Methodist Church. Well, Carmen, for um, almost 50 years now, the United Methodist Church has been engaged in a deep theological um, argument about how to understand Scripture and the place of Scripture and the theology and life of the Church. And um, really, it's been over the last five, seven years come to a head to where uh, parts of the United Methodist Church have really decided that they're going to disobey the teachings of the Church. And the church defines marriage as between one man and one woman, and it defines uh, sexuality as reserved for uh, monogamous heterosexual marriage. And so <clears throat> those who are uh, striving to uh, bring about greater uh, affirmation of the LGBTQ persons and their um, behavior have determined that they're not going to live with that. And so we've come to this crisis point where we realize that no matter what is in the book of discipline, what the laws of the church are on paper, 
if people don't abide by them, then uh, it doesn't, they aren't worth the paper they're written on. So a group of people got together from across the theological spectrum, leaders of uh, various advocacy groups, and came to an agreement of how we could actually see a separation in the church that would allow for a new evangelical, traditional, um, biblically-based denomination to form and um, allow churches to join that denomination without losing their property. We watched what happened in the Episcopal Church and in the Presbyterian Church, and we saw that you know many of those churches had to leave behind their church buildings when their, that split happened in their denomination. And we feel like uh, it's important that we sustain ministry and not harm congregations. So this is an agreement that's been proposed. It still has to be uh, fleshed out in legislation and submitted to our general conference in May, and the delegates have to agree to it. So there's nothing that's actually happened at this point, uh, it, but it's a, a very strong proposal that probably has a lot of broad support. So um, that sounds to me, Tom, as if members of local United Methodist congregations uh, are going to be presented with a very clear choice between um, a denomination going forward that continues to um, uphold and abide by, expects people to abide by these clear standards of um, sexual orientation, gender identity, marriage, ordination, and another denomination um, which will have a very clearly um, LGBTQ affirming um, positions on uh, on marriage and ordination. I mean, that, this might be the easiest way to um, to demarcate the the two different denominations that will emerge from this. Um, in in United Methodism, will members of churches be voting, or will only their decision making bodies, which in the Presbyterian Church would be a session, in the United Methodist Church, that group of people is called what? Well, I guess we would call it um, the local church council, Um, but there's decision-making at two different levels in our church. Um, We have annual conferences, which are like dioceses, um, or I don't know what you would call it, a presbytery maybe? Presbytery, Mm -hmm. mm-hmm. So this is a a group of churches in a regional area, and those annual conferences will have an opportunity to uh, vote to realign with a more traditional denomination. And if they choose to do that, the churches within that annual conference would go with them unless they disagree. But individual churches would also have the opportunity to to, uh, make a decision, Uh, and it would not be just the vote of the church council. It would be a vote of the congregation in what we call a church conference or an all-church meeting, where they'd be able to uh, express their desire to affiliate with a more traditional denomination if their annual conference goes liberal. Or if their annual conference goes traditional and they want to be uh, in a more liberal denomination, they could make that decision as well. Okay, that actually sounds like a reasonable process. I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm excited by the prospects of how this might work itself out. I also recognize um, that in every congregation, even a congregation that has, you know, what we might consider. I'll use language here that everybody can can pick and choose from, um, evangelical or conservative, orthodox, traditional, um, those who are going to, uh, you know, agree with the, the position of the Christian church over more than 2,000 years in terms of 
human um, human relationships, sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, even in congregations who have that kind of pastor, that kind of leadership, there will be individuals who feel very strongly because of a relationship in their own family um, or because, you know, frankly, Tom, they don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings. Um, they are going to create internal division. How, um, how do you anticipate that being addressed? Because I know that, if, you know, on the Presbyterian side of this, that was the most devastating reality. Smaller congregations who, you know, essentially had to take a vote um, that, that revealed some very deep divisions within their local body. Well, we address that in two different ways. Uh, one, we hope that by coming to this kind of an agreement uh, for what we're hoping will be an amicable separation, that we can kind of set the tone for the conversations that happen in local churches. That while they may be deeply felt conversations, they won't be the kind of uh, animosity that can develop where people have disagreements. We believe that we ought to disagree with one another in a Christ-like way. Secondly, um, we believe that by having annual conferences take the initial decision, it takes the pressure off of a lot of local churches. Um, Not all local churches will have to take a vote, only those who disagree with the decision of their annual conference. And so we believe that a vast majority of congregations will never have to vote. Yeah, I um I like that. I appreciate that. I think that that probably goes in the right order of things and um and down the road, uh you know, hopefully prevent some of the some of the pain that has been experienced in other denominations. Tom, you and I need to take a quick break. When we come back, I would I would like for you to answer the most often question that I heard along the way. Um, when this uh, when this arose in Presbyterianism, and that is the question: How did we get here? How did we arrive at this place? So, in that conversation, up next with Tom Lambrecht, we'll be right back. I'm talking with Tom Lambrecht. He is the vice president and general manager of Good News, uh, has served as an ordained United Methodist elder in Wisconsin since 1982. Uh, he is a clear voice of renewal within United Methodism, um, and he has been very engaged and involved in this process um, by which traditionalist centrists and progressives uh, have reached the point in the United Methodist Church where they are ready to present a plan of separation to to the body. Um, and so uh, I, I think it's being called a protocol of reconciliation and grace through separation, which is a mouthful, um, but you can find it um, at unitedmethodistbishops.org. You can also find it through Good News. Um, Tom, when we, when we hear the question that many people in the United Methodist Church are going to ask when they hear that this— is the place at which their denomination has arrived. They are going to ask this question. How did we get here? Um, How do you answer that? Well, Carmen, there are two main factors that that led us into this situation. Uh, One goes back over 100 years to the um, bringing into the United States the German kind of theological method of deconstructing Scripture and not holding Scripture as the inspired Word of God but rather as a human record of people's experiences with God. 
And that infiltrated the seminaries and began to taint the education of pastors. And over the generations, uh, it has caused the theological weakening of the church, both uh, United Methodists, but also other mainline denominations. As denominations moved into more seminary-educated clergy, they, they were, um, in often cases, uh, corrupted, I guess you would say, by their education. And then in 1968, when the United Methodist Church began, uh, out of a merger of other denominations coming together, um, we injected some fatal DNA into our body. And that was the decision that we do not have um, a creed or a, a set doctrine that we must believe. Our doctrinal standards are seen by many in the church as only guidelines. And uh, we established a theological method called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which isn't really Wesleyan, um, where people can use scripture, tradition, reason, and experience in order to formulate their theology. And it doesn't matter where you come from, whether you come from experience or whether you come from scripture or tradition, um, but you have to take into account all four of those, and they all four, in many people's mind, had equal authority. And so now today we have people who are saying, well, my experience doesn't match what Scripture says, and therefore um, I, I'm going to disregard Scripture. And that has led us to this place where um, we're <clears throat> able to see many people who are disregarding the clear teaching of Scripture in favor of a, a personal experience that, that doesn't match that. And um, we've lost all sense of authority in the Church. Everybody decides what what they believe for themselves. It's kind of a smorgasbord approach, and and that's created the chaos that we're living in right now. A couple of, uh, a couple of observations as you say that. The question of the authority of Scripture, and God is the author of it, which, you know, for all of us goes back, as you've noted, more than 100 years, um, is in terms of the contest over that. Um, the The place at which we arrive where we do not all um, articulate our faith in a shared way. So there you're using the language of creed or confession. Um, We don't have a shared Mm -hmm. confessional standard. I would say both of those very clearly echoed um, in in the experience in in the Presbyterian Church USA um, and its ultimate um, division. Uh, and then this uh, this conversation about um, people not submitting to the authority of the church as a body, um, and that is is rampant in United Methodism. And I think that for people who really want to understand why this must happen, why even though um, conservatives or traditionalists within United Methodism have been able to actually you know hold the line in terms of um, what your shared documents say, how you will govern yourselves, how you will live together um, as a denomination, those standards are being um, openly violated, not just by members of the clergy, but by bishops within your denomination. And so um, it, it it has reached a place where it seems impossible for um, people of conservative, traditional, or evangelical faith to remain because the body itself, as you describe, is, has been infected by, um, by a DNA that really is allowing for everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. That's right, Carmen. And, you know, we attempted in St. Louis in our last general conference in February of 2019 to 
um, inject more accountability into the church. But uh, the response to that from those who disagree has been overwhelmingly negative and a refusal, really, to abide by what the church has decided. And when the church becomes ungovernable, when uh, bishops feel like they can do whatever they want, uh, regardless of what the church teaches or says, uh, then you have a, a situation where the church is already in schism. And so, the, like many marriages where, that go through a divorce, the divorce is really a recognition that the marriage has already fallen apart. And I think in our case, uh, the separation is a recognition that schism has already occurred. And um, it's just not profitable for us to continue fighting when we can spend millions of dollars on these um, general conference efforts to try and keep the church faithful but that money could be much more wisely spent uh, in missions and evangelism and planting churches and helping people in need. Um, so why, why should we spend all this time, energy, and resources on a battle that we believe is now unwinnable? We are with you and we are for you. Um, we'll continue to walk this journey with you, Tom. Um, we hope that you'll be willing to come back and give us updates along the way um, as this process unfolds in United Methodism. I'd be happy to do that, Carmen, and we're excited about what God has ahead for us. Amen. Amen. I mean, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the future of the Church of Jesus Christ is bright. You guys can find Tom at goodnewsmag.org. We'll be right back. All right, so let's uh, let's lift up prayers today for our friends and neighbors in the United Methodist Church. Um, this is a good conversation for you to have with uh, with members of United Methodist congregations where you live, people you know. Um, be sure they are aware of what's going on, and um, you know, encourage them, encourage them to submit themselves to the Word of God as revealed in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, and to um, encourage and affirm those in United Methodism who are going to continue to uphold, um, you know, what God has revealed about human nature and human life and human marriage and uh, his desire for the church of Jesus Christ in the world today. Um, All right. So we got uh, like a minute left. And so in this walk-off minute, let me just encourage you um, to consider what's before you today and how you will walk into it as an ambassador of the king in the kingdom. You are an agent of grace. You are a child of the king Um, You are fearfully and wonderfully made. No matter what the world says about you, what God has said about you in Jesus Christ is you are mine. You're mine. You're mine, and I love you. God is a God of mercy and a God of grace, a God of steadfast love, and his mercy is new every morning. If you need God's uh, new mercy today, a new mercy of God today, all you have to do is ask for it. God, God, give me your mercy. Give me your mercy today. Uh, according to your steadfast love. All right, friends, uh, we'll meet right back here tomorrow. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.